Hello and welcome to episode five of Piano Lessons. Here once again, Phil Graham and Mark Piano. Mark, welcome. How has your week been? Uh, Phil, it's been good. Lots going on and looking forward to discussing some of the topics. Absolutely. I, by, by looking forward, I know that you're hot under the collar on some of these. So let's jump straight into the piano recital and see what you'd uh, you'd like to get into. Uh, Revolut, uh, I'm sure you still got, got, got a green light to start offering digital asset services uh, in the UK last week, which was great. Um, no mean feat getting that past the FCA at the moment. Um, so congratulations to them. And hot from uh, Token 2049 um, in, in Singapore, which some of our colleagues went along to. Um, we saw that BitMEX announced that it was going to launch its own token by the end of the year. Um, be interesting to see how that plays out for them, um, having gone through a relatively bumpy ride over the last few years. Um, Meta um, rolled out an NFT sharing feature on, on Facebook and Instagram, which allows users to connect their wallets and share their collectibles and has to be part of the sort of evolution of, of how we will use our, uh, our JPEGs. And the, this in contrast to Apple, which I saw that, that, that actually a number of the NFT marketplaces have commented that Apple are really making the NFT startup world a very hard place. They have up to 30% commission on, on various in-app purchases and other sort of clunky pricing conventions that just mean they just don't consider the app functionality really when, when launching their projects, which is a real shame. And it will be interesting to see how that develops as Apple begins to get their head around this world. Um, there was an election, I'm sure you saw, of uh, a new CEO of SushiSwap, Jared Gray, um, being described as the head chef. Let's see which direction he takes that in. Um, and then Strike, the, the mobile payments app um, that facilitates sort of instantaneous transactions through the blockchain, they raised another 80 million. So despite this crypto winter, as we've said on a number of these podcasts, there is still some optimism. There are still projects doing good things, raising in the right way and pushing in the, in, in the right direction. But you, Mark, have spent your weekend looking through some of the text messages um, that have been released as part of the ongoing litigation uh, between, obviously, Twitter um, and, and Mr. Musk, um, a Web3 social media platform, including fees to remove some of the bots and to post everything on chain. It's fascinating, you know, as, as a concept, but obviously comes with some real sort of practical and legal challenges. We'd love to hear your views on it. This is my favorite topic because it combines some fairly hot button issues at the moment around free speech and uh, moderation of that and who moderates it and who makes those calls. But also it's not actually a new idea. So if you remember Steemit a few years ago, yep. that then forked and became Hive and there was a bit of controversy around that. There's also one a lot of people have probably not heard of because it's not really taken off, decentralized news network. And this was the idea of having news articles posted, mostly political news, and then if there was any challenge to the contents or there was some fact checking to be done, there would be incentivization for people to post things which were accurate and which people voted as being reflective of what was actually said or the angle on it. Now that hasn't taken off. And if you look at the DNN media site now, it seems to be related to crypto projects. But this idea has been floated for a while. Some practical issues around it, it's expensive to write data to the blockchain, but also free speech, there's a line between that and posting and using illegal content. And if you write something to a blockchain, it's theoretically immutable. Now, files and videos are hosted on IPFS or other global file sharing sites, but the content itself, if that's written and hard coded into the chain, that could potentially create some sticky issues around data privacy or facilitating criminal activity or even distributing the proceeds of criminal activity. So not sure it's necessarily the correct idea in terms of the practicality of it, or that it's even going to go off the ground. Because and I, I think you see so much around the sort of Twitter sphere around edit buttons and, and, and around, 
you know, some really high profile celebrities that have been caught out by something they posted 10 years beforehand um, in, in, in a variety of news stories that, that all of this content, as you say, whilst it's a very interesting idea, can lead to some really uh, sort of further problems going forward. But let's again see how it plays out. Right, onto the piano solo. This week, we saw the CFTC chairman saying Bitcoin could double in price if there's a CFTC regulated market. Um, a slightly odd statement to hear from a regulator. Um, All right, for, for, for a start, I've never heard a regulator make a statement like that. The idea that if you if you let us control things, you could make more money. It's like, really? This is nuts. So there's a bit of context here. There's a turf war going on between the CFTC and the SEC as to who's going to regulate crypto. But the wider issue I have is that this is being positioned as if we regulate this space in a controlled and mature way, it opens the door for institutional flow or institutional players coming in. And my issue is that's not why this technology was created. It was created, okay, after 2008, but it was a direct alternative to the existing central banking system and the problem of fractional reserve banks and the problems of bailouts and giving people um, a full moral hazard environment. And that's why Bitcoin was originally created. Uh, there was talk back in 2015, 16, 17 of banking the unbanked and democratizing access to finance and allowing people to organize and manage human affairs in a fair and verifiable manner. But now that seems to be going out the window and it's all about getting the institutions in, getting the institutional inflow in. What's the point of this tech if it's just going to allow the existing players to consolidate their positions or to create an, a new old guard? And if all of this stuff of actually helping people falls by the wayside, what's the damn point of doing it? So I can, on the one hand, there's that argument. On the other hand, I can see the benefit of a maturing market and maybe trying to get rid of some of the scammers and some of the nefarious actors. We don't have any kind of guidance in the US as to what this is going to take. There's a framework published. Who knows what that's going to be? Maybe it's case by case enforcement actions. Who knows who's actually going to be the regulator? We've got these two regulators duking it out. The whole space at the moment seems to be uh, trying to work out where it wants to go and what it wants to be. Is it going to replicate the existing financial system with a little bit of innovation? Or are we genuinely going to see the ways in which people organize and transact with each other fundamentally change and become more accessible, which was the entire point of the whole thing? I'd have to say we, we obviously have an enormous amount of respect for, for the regulators around the world that are trying to get their minds around this cutting edge technology that changes every day. Um, same with the tax authorities, same with the legal advisors, same with everyone that is within this. We're all trying to understand it. We're all trying to interpret it. Um, we're all trying to come at it in, in, in the right place. Um, there, there is obviously this dream of, of what this world could become, what, what, what this technology could achieve, um, but it does have to come with clearly some form of guidelines, parameters, safeguards as to how it can be operated. Finally, the piano tuner. I strongly suspect this one has come from one of our litigation friends. Um, why aren't we seeing more of a blow up in litigation and insolvencies? Um, we saw a whole raft, you know, in and around the lunar crash and sort of the, the talk of a new crypto winter, but they seem to have slowed down. Do you foresee that there are still some fundamental sort of actions and issues that are going to play out and, and, and come through? I don't know, really, because we saw an immediate contagion with quite a few actors being affected by the uh, collapse of Luna and that having a knock-on effect on certain lenders and funds. We've had certain funds blow up pretty quickly. Now, even though things seem to be a bit quieter and we're not seeing this widespread contagion affecting other markets, if you look at FTX, for example, they jumped in on potentially some not great commercial deals by their own admission, but they wanted to save certain players. I don't think we're going to see a continued 
spread of the contagion because I think it's been several months now and not everyone took the same position. We have to remember that just because a few players were affected by it doesn't mean everyone's going to be affected by it. Now there's unforeseen consequences and there's certain uh, concomitant effects of some of these insolvencies. I don't necessarily think we're going to see all the DAOs blowing up or all the funds liquidating or a whole bunch of shareholders suing Web3 projects. You've got to remember, even though we talk about digital assets, it's a very diverse space. And so just because there is an event doesn't necessarily mean everyone's going to get caught up in it. So we may do, we may not do. I think we've seen the worst of it over for now. And let's see what happens after that. I mean, I think on the on the fund side, obviously, we saw 3AC and, 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 and a few other smaller funds um, obviously have some, some serious problems. But fundamentally, there were three things there for me. The first one that a well-structured fund with sensible legal advisors putting it together for you is able to deal with the sort of the slings and arrows that are thrown at you through 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 these types of volatile markets. The second point um, is that investors in this space fundamentally are a lot more patient than they used to be. Um, I think there was this this sort of terror as an investor going in and sort of dipping your toe. And then as soon as there was any kind of fright coming back out again and saying you didn't want exposure. I think those investors that come in now understand the exposure, understand the risk, understand the volatility and hope still that the long term play that the manager has put together for them um, will, will, will ride out. The final one um, that you really have to look at is the strategies that currently people are running. They're no longer sort of relatively simple strategies that will be fundamentally thrown out by these types of crashes and these types of effects. There are a lot more hybrid strategies. They are, as you say, going into the industry as a much more wide basis. They are looking at other different aspects of it to make sure that they're relatively well hedged against this type of environment. Thank you very much indeed, Mark, and uh, see you next week. Thank you, Phil.